0: Well, God sent me here today to ask you a question, and he brought you here to have an answer. And the question is this. If you die today, what will happen to your soul? Will you go to heaven or will you go to hell? Now, if this is the first time I've ever met you, this is not usually the way I start out. A conversation. All right. I know that's a little up front, a little bold. Usually I try to get somebody's name before I ask them that question, right? When our church was just getting started, my wife Krista and I, we had the pleasure of having the college ministry meet at our house. And some of the first people that God saved here at our church, they started coming to this college ministry. And this one man who's uh, still on fire for the Lord today, uh, he came in and he was just so pumped up about sharing his faith. And he said, yeah, I was talking to this lady at the bus stop the other day and I was like, hey. If you died today, where would you go? And I was like, bro, do you think that's a little strong for a lady you don't even know at the bus stop? You know, like, don't you think that's coming on a little strong? And he was like, no, that's the question somebody asked me. And that's how I realized I wasn't saved and I needed to get saved. So I thought I'll just ask that question to other people. And I was like, well, that's good logic. But can I ask you, who asked you that question? Well, actually, it was my best friend. Yeah. And how long had you known him for like 10 years? Uh, Okay, so that's a little different than the lady at the bus stop. Right. Um, So usually I'd like to get to know you before I ask you, but it is so important that it's something we need to talk about. And in fact, if you were here on Christmas Eve and we had a bunch of testimonies as people were getting baptized, This was something that regularly came up. One of the ladies who got baptized shared a testimony that her sister and her family, they were all gathered around one day and they asked her just point blank, if you died, would you go to heaven? And it was that conversation that God used to save her. Another lady, she shared when she was getting baptized, she shared that she came here one day and like today, we were talking about death and what's going to happen in eternity, and she was offended by it. She thought it was so rude for us to be just talking about death. And who wants to think about that? Well, actually, when it came later in her life, as she kept coming back and learning more about the gospel, when she was then concerned for her own life, it was the fear of death that God used to awaken her to life in Jesus Christ. And so this is a question that life in a fallen world forces us to consider, is that death is a reality and what is going to happen to your soul? If you die today and we see this story play out in Daniel chapter five, if you've got a Bible, please open it up because you're going to see this is why we're talking about the death. This is why we're asking the question, if you die today, because Daniel five happens in one night where a king throws a party and by the end of the night, he's dead. He was throwing a party for himself and uh, thousands of his people, and he thought it was going to just be a night of drunken fun and revelry, and he ended up having his soul required of him that very night. That's the story of King Belshazzar that we're going to read in Daniel 5, page 742, if you got one of our Bibles, and this is really a horror story. It starts out, if they made uh, Daniel 5 into a movie, it would be rated R. It would start out in this scene of a drunken party, and then it would take this horrifying twist, And it ends up in a scene of violence as their enemies come in and kill the king himself. Daniel chapter five, verse one. I'll read it. Please follow along. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. So the king is getting drunk and he's doing it in public in front of a thousand, it says here. And as a part of their drunkenness, They get these golden vessels that were taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem that they now have in Babylon, and they start using them as their drinking glasses there. And not only are they mocking uh, the most high God of heaven, the God of Israel, while they're praising idols uh, of, of, of just objects here, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're worshiping false gods while they make a mockery of the God of heaven. And here's where it takes that horrifying turn. Verse five immediately. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together so the king can see. What looks like a human hand writing on the wall. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, the writing on the wall. This is where it comes from, Daniel 5. And so there's a human hand writing on the plaster of the wall. It's writing in Aramaic. The words are all run together. It starts on the right and it goes to the left. And there's a hand writing. And when the king sees it, he's not enjoying himself at the party anymore. He's panicked. In fact, his limbs give way. It's like he faints. It's like he has no strength. And his knees start knocking. And he is now in terrible fear because of this hand writing on the wall. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The panic is now spreading from the king to his lords and everyone is growing great in fear. What is this hand writing on the wall? What does it mean? Now, if you've been going through Daniel with us, we're on chapter five. This sounds very similar to some of the other chapters that we've already studied. Where the king is freaking out and King Nebuchadnezzar had a couple bad dreams and he brought in all the wise men and nobody could tell him what his dream meant until he brought in Daniel. So this king now, Belshazzar, why doesn't he just bring in Daniel? Well, we think some time has really passed here in Babylon since between chapter four and chapter five. And in fact, it refers to you'll notice King Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as the father of Belshazzar. But we got to remember that the Jews also referred to their father, who Abraham, even though he wasn't directly their dad. So the king here is referring to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, as in he's the kingly line that I come from. He's my uh, ancestor. I'm his descendant. But in the Old Testament, in Hebrew and here Aramaic, as it's written, the language of Babylon, they don't use the words grandpa or great grandpa. Everybody older than you, that you come from their line, is your father. So based on the history of Babylon, as we understand it, I don't think Belshazzar was actually King Nebuchadnezzar's son. I think he might have been his grandson. And I think there were a few kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. There's been some time that has gone by, I think Daniel is now around 80 years, 80 years old. So he was a young man at the beginning of Daniel. Now he is an old man. And over that time, the legend, the history of Daniel, it seems like some of it has been forgotten. And King Belshazzar is not personally familiar with Daniel until the queen comes in. And this could be here, the queen mother. Notice how, if you look at verse 7, how he said, whoever interprets the dream, he'll make them the third ruler in the kingdom. Why would you make somebody the third ruler in the kingdom? Well, I think King Belshazzar was actually the second ruler in the kingdom. And he was there in Babylon holding it down. But his dad, King Nabonidus, he was a very interesting king of Babylon. He wasn't based in the main city there. He went out and he lived in other cities. And King Nabonidus went and started war with the Medes and the Persians. And so the real king, his dad, is out there fighting, and the son now is reigning as second command, reigning supreme, throwing a party, basically, while dad's gone. They're in the palace, and now whoever can interpret this writing on the wall, well, he'll make them the third in charge because he is the second in charge. And so the queen, who I think could be the queen mother here, this could be his mom showing up. The queen, because of this is verse 10, because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, "O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods or you could translate it the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. And he will show the interpretation. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. So here now we have to summon. We are having a party. Let's just review the scene. The king, who's really the second in command, he is throwing a massive party with all the lords and the wives and the concubines, and they are all getting drunk. And what are they doing while they're getting drunk? They're defiling the golden vessels from the temple of God in Jerusalem, making a mockery of the Jews and their God. And now they have this massive writing on the wall. They're all freaking out. And who is the only person in the entire kingdom that can interpret for them what the writing means? Well, it's one of the Jews. They were just mocking. And he's bringing them the wisdom from the most high God in heaven. So this party has radically flipped around. And once again, God is stealing the scene with his man, Daniel. And here he comes in uh, and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king. Now, here's a little history lesson with Daniel. Let's go back. This is a review of what we learned last week in chapter 4. Before he gives the interpretation, he gives the history. And he says here in verse 18 O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled Your heart, though you knew all this, this is the history of Babylon. Everybody grew up knowing this. But you have not humbled your heart. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You've made a big mistake, King Belshazzar. You have mocked the God of heaven who holds your life as a breath in his hand. And you have worshipped these false gods who can do nothing for you. And then he gives the interpretation. Verse 24, then from his presence, from the presence of God in heaven, the hand was sent. Gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And really, if you and I were reading this in ancient Aramaic, as it is in the Hebrew Bible, uh, chapter five ends right after verse 30. I don't know why in our English translation we added verse Thirty one to chapter five, verse thirty one begins Daniel six, which we'll get to next week. Really, that is how the story is meant to be told, that you're left with this chilling line, this haunting thought that very night the king was killed. Because while they are there feasting and acting like they can get drunk and acting like they're safe in their mighty fortress of a city with these massive walls that were so high and so thick, they were thought to be impenetrable. They thought that they had built a city that no army on earth could ever invade. And while they're here feasting and partying, Nabonidus is out there fighting the Medes and the Persians well he's losing to the Medes and the Persians. And they've now come and surrounded the city of Babylon. And while they're here drinking wine and getting drunk, what the Medes and the Persians are doing is they're digging a trench because the Euphrates River flows through the city of Babylon, and they're digging this big trench to divert some of the water from the Euphrates to start going into their trench, and that's lowering the level of the river, and then they're coming in under the walls in the river. They're already in the city, and within hours of Daniel saying this, the king will be killed by the Medes and the Persians. Here they are feasting, here they are partying, and that is the very night that their soul is required of them by God. This is a tragic story, a horror story, meant to make the reader think, whoa, death comes unexpectedly. And particularly, I think we're supposed to focus on the words that are written by the hand of, On the wall, and you see those three words there on your handout, these Aramaic words that Daniel interprets. Let's start with Mene. Mene means numbered. That's what it means. It means numbered. Hey, King Belshazzar, you've been numbered, and guess what? Today is the end of you and your kingdom. There was a number of days that you could be king, and today is the last one. Your number has come up. First thing, Daniel says that God wrote on the wall that Daniel interprets for the king to hear these chilling words. First one, numbered. Your time is up, King Belshazzar. And these, all of these words that we're going to see, they are not just true for this ancient king of Babylon. These words are true for you and they're true for me as we sit here this morning. Turn with me to Psalm 139 and let's talk about our days being numbered. Psalm 139. We want to look at verse 13 on page 522. If you got one of our Bibles, Psalm 139 is David worshiping God, saying that, God, you're omniscient. You know everything about me. You know what I'm going to say. While well, the thought is before it's even reached my lips, you already know what I'm going to say. God, you're everywhere. You're omnipresent. There's nowhere I can go that you are not there. There's nowhere I could get away from you. You're always with me. You know everything about me. And then David, he begins to talk about how God is his creator. He is his maker, how he formed him when he was in the mother's his mother's womb. So David's going to write here in Psalm 139, verse 13, how he was alive. He was created by God in the mother's womb before there was even his birthday. God was already fashioning and forming him. And he says here in Psalm 139, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I (laughs) praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Here is one of the creation worshiping the creator who made him. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. You could see me. You could see who I was going to be. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Before David even ever experienced his birthday, God already had written a book that would contain all of his days from his birthday until the day of his death. God already knows the days that would be on our tombstone while we are alive. God has ordained every one of us a number of days. That's what David says. That all of your days right now have been written down in a book, and God knows exactly the day that you will die, that the wages of your sin will catch up with you. God knows exactly what day it is, and God right now could tell you the number of days that you have left. That's a little bit different than how we think, but that's how the Bible describes our life. Turn with me to Psalm 90, and you'll hear it here as well from Moses. In this one psalm that Moses wrote, a prayer from the man of God, a man who talked to God face to face like we speak with a friend, Moses, he wrote about how how short our life is, how brief our life is. You know, you hear people today, we say things like if you just exercise and you just eat right, then you're going to live longer. Have you heard people say that? You heard people act like you are actually in control of how long you're going to live. See, that idea is out there. And hey, I, I think it's a good idea to exercise, and I think it's a good idea to eat right, to have a certain diet to make sure your heart is healthy. I think there's wisdom in that. But the idea that you can make yourself live longer is antithetical to the teaching of the Bible. God is the giver of your life, God is the one who holds your breath. In his hand, and just as the Lord has given, the Lord can take away and he can do it any day. And he's already got it planned out how it's going to happen. There is nothing you can do to live any longer. There is a day that God has appointed for you to die. And before that day, there is nothing that can kill you. And after that day, there is nothing that can keep you alive. God has ordained every one of them, your days. And Moses is saying, we got to understand that there's a heart of wisdom in that. Pick it up in what Moses is saying here. He's talking about how we're dust and how God exists in eternity outside of space and time. And a thousand years would be would be so long to us down here on earth. It's just like yesterday or a watch in the night to God who dwells in eternity. And he says here in verse nine, this is Psalm 90, verse nine, page 497. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh, like life ends, like a sigh, like a big breath, like it's over before you even really realize it. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, maybe yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Our souls enter eternity. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So because of who we are, because there is the reality of death as a fall, as the curse of sin, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You want to be wise? You want to live your life from a biblical perspective? You have a number of days. Make your days count. Make the most of them. Redeem them. Don't waste them in drunkenness. That's the idea. You want to have a heart of wisdom? Live like your days are numbered. As a pastor, I encounter death, maybe more than the average person who lives in Orange County. I'm regularly maybe there when somebody dies, or with the family, trying to comfort them with the comfort that God has when they're mourning the loss of a loved one. And and it is so often, it is almost every single time, when somebody dies, that it is said that they died too soon. They died exactly on the day that God numbered for them. They did not die too soon. And you and I, we know unhealthy people who have lived for a really long time, and we know healthy people whose lives have been really cut short. There's a false sense of security in thinking that you can control how many days you're going to live on this planet. No one dies too soon. They die on the day that God ordained. And, he, and you would be wise to know that. You would be wise to learn what King Belshazzar learned too late, that all of our days are mene, meaning they are numbered. The second word is tekel, and tekel means weighed. That's what it means. Tekel means weighed. And weighed, what he says here is absolutely chilling. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And immediately when you hear the balances, you might have the picture of that scale, right, of those two sides. And hey, you've been weighed and you have been found wanting, like you haven't measured up to the standard. You haven't passed it. So we know the scripture clearly tells us that it is appointed because of sin. Is it appointed to every man to die? And after death comes what? Judgment. So we've already made a statement that you're numbered. That's, hey, today's your last day. You're going to die today. And now you're weighed. The second statement. Now we're going right into judgment. And hey, here's the word about you, King Belshazzar. You've been weighed. And guess what? You're found wanting. You haven't passed the judgment you will be condemned. Can you imagine how chilling that must be to have a prophet of God, a man who speaks the wisdom of God, looking at you and saying that God has weighed you in the balances and you have been found wanting? So this idea of a scale is kind of built into our thinking as human beings and all around us. There's this idea that's that's present And it's like it's hard to get away from it, that basically uh, the scales on Judgment Day, if I do more good than I do bad, if I do more help to others rather than harm to others, somehow I'll make it into things will work out for me in eternity. I'll make it into heaven as long as kind of I balance out and there's more good than bad. I will be fine when a lot of people hear the balances. That's what they think. The problem is that's not what the Bible is saying. Never once does it say that. Now it says a lot about scales and balances because that's how they would do their transactions. These days, I have a card and it has a little chip in it and they want me to insert the chip, but wait, no, you need to do it again, please take it out. Then I put the chip back in there, wait, no, it didn't work that time, let's try it again, take it out. Then I, anybody else ever been there before, Right, right? That's a transaction, that's what we call it today, right? Well, that's how they did it back in the day, with scales, with balances. They would do their transactions. Hey, you have been found wanting. You don't measure up. Wow. So now not only is today the end and you're going to die, that's not what that's what the first word that's repeated there means. There's a number of your days and this is the number. Well, now you've been weighed and you don't measure up. You're wanting. Turn with me to Psalm 62. Look at how it talks about the scales here. Here's a verse that everybody needs to see. Psalm 62, verse nine, because the picture here of the scales is different than how we think of it. Uh, the Bible's not using some kind of scale or balance of good and bad to determine who goes to heaven. No, this is what it's actually saying about our life. Our life has no weight to it. We don't have the eternal weight of glory in our life here, this temporary life here on planet Earth. Psalm 62 9, this would be a good verse to write down. Those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. So the idea here is we're taking your life and we're putting it on the scale. And then your life is so light. Your life is like a breath. It's so here today, gone tomorrow, that when we put it on the scale, your life has no weight to it. And the scale doesn't go down like there's weight on it. The scale just goes up. That's what it's saying about your life. And you might think some people, they die and it's, and it's not a big deal. Some people of low estate, they die and not everybody mourns on planet Earth. But then there's this thought among us that there's some people that are really important. There's these kings and politicians and celebrities and famous people. And when they die, it really matters. And it says that's a delusion. That's a lie. Whether you're esteemed lowly or highly here on Earth, when it comes to the scales of heaven, you don't measure up. It says your life is like a breath. That's what it says your life is like. It's like a breath. You might want to write down James 4.14. We'll put it up here on the screen. James 4.14 says to people who think they've got such and such a time, they're going to go to this city. They're going to make a profit. They're going to retire here. They're going to live there. They've got their future all planned out. They're counting their tomorrows. It says you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to anybody here in the room. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. See those kids having so much fun up there in the snow? The high schoolers, the junior hires down here in Orange County, we don't get snow like that. They're up there. They got their jackets, their beanies, their mittens. They're throwing snow at each other's faces. They're having a great time, right? You can just picture some of the junior high guys out by their cabin at night. Hey, man, check this out. Look at my breath. Can you see it? (laughs) Right? And you see it for a second, and then it's what? That's you. That's what the Bible says. I mean, how many times have you said your kids are growing up so fast? How many times have you said another year has gone by so fast? It's just going to get faster, and then you're going to be gone. (laughs) There was you. That's what the Bible says. This is how you're supposed to think about your life here today, gone tomorrow. It's about a breath. And, And you don't measure up for eternity. You're not ready for that. Your brief life here on earth. There's no way that you could have weight in the balances of heaven. And next time somebody says to you. Oh, I think I'm a good person. I think I've done more good than bad. I think I'm going to be okay when I die because I've helped people more than I've hurt people. I haven't really done anything wrong. When people here on earth say they're a good person, we know what they mean. They're comparing themselves to other people. And usually what it means to say you're one of the good people is you're not in jail right now. That's usually the criteria when you track it down. Okay, But in the scripture, when we start comparing on the scales of heaven, When we start measuring up to the standard of God, turn with me to Romans chapter three. There is no such thing in the Bible as a good person. And I would strongly encourage you if you think of yourself as a good person or you talk to someone who refers to themselves as a good person, you need to say authoritatively and emphatically there. You know, the Bible teaches there is no such thing as a good person. Do you know that the Bible says when it comes to getting into heaven? Yeah, we might have good people down here on earth, but when we compare people of low estate or high estate to the scales of heaven, there is not one person down here on earth, no human being who measures up to the standard of God. That really when we get to the standard of God, the word we should use is not as much good maybe as we might use it today, but how about perfect? Let's use that word. How about righteous? That's the standard of God. And Romans chapter 3 is Paul assembling all of these verses from the Old Testament, some of them from the Psalms. And he's saying, hey, here's, look at what it's telling us about ourselves. Look at what the Scripture is definitively saying about the condition of human beings and how we compare to a holy and righteous God in heaven. And he compiles them here in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, quotes now from the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Is that pretty clear right there, everybody? Is that pretty clear? If you were to stand before God on the merits of your works, on the merits of how good you lived your life, you would be weighed in the balances and you would be found wanting. That's true about every single one of us. In fact, look what it says in Romans three nineteen and 20. Look what it says here. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The law of the Bible, that things like the Ten Commandments are not supposed to be rules that we think we can keep. The reason they are there is to expose to us our sin, that we don't honor our father and mother. We do hate in our heart. We do lust after other people. We lie and we covet. And it's supposed to show us that we are under the law. We are guilty before God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. No human being will measure up to his standard. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then we know famously, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. And this isn't like when we try to tell our kids that what they did is wrong, and our kids give us so many excuses. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Blame shifting to the siblings. I mean, how many kids have thrown their siblings under the bus, right? And then sometimes these kids, they're still learning the ways of the world. They start to say, it's your fault that they did what they did. Not a wise tactic at all, right? I mean, they start giving you all the reasons, all the excuses, all the contributing factors that led to this poor decision, and they're trying to say it's not their fault. Let me just tell you, on the day of judgment, nobody's making an appeal to God. Nobody's giving excuses to God. It says that every mouth may be stopped. Literally, every mouth is going to be shut up in the presence of God, and every single soul will stand guilty before the holy judge. No one will be able to say that we are a product of our environment. No one will be able to blame their bad choices on their family. You will take personal responsibility before a holy God for what you have done. You will be weighed in the balances. And if you stand there on your own merits, you will be found wanting. And then he says Perez. Perez is the singular form uh, of the word that was written on the wall. Parson Perez means divided. That's what Perez means. It means divided. Okay, so you're going to die. Your days have come to the number. You're going to be judged. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And now let's talk about what's going to happen to this kingdom where you're sitting here all high and mighty, like you're the king of the world and you can have a drunken party with all of your friends. Well, actually, no, today your kingdom is going to be divided to the Medes and the Persians. This is the last day of Babylon in the entire history of the world. Numbered, weighed, divided. And Jesus tells a story using the same word divided in Luke 12, 13. And I need everybody to look at this story in Luke 12, 13. It's on page 871. If you got one of our books, because here's Jesus now taking the history lesson that we're learning about King Belshazzar from Daniel five. And now he's applying it to all of us in this parable. In fact, after you study Daniel 5, and then we read this story right here, I would imagine that maybe even Jesus was thinking about Daniel 5 when he told this parable. Or maybe some of the people who heard it, they were comparing it to King Belshazzar in Daniel 5. Because it's such a similar story. And it even uses this keyword, divided. That's the question that a man asked to Jesus that brings up this story. Luke 12, 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There it is that we're divided. See, here's something we don't often think about. Those of us who are alive is that after we die, everybody else gets our stuff. That's how life works. All of your earthly possessions that you think are yours when you die, they are no longer yours. They are divided. And to the Jewish culture receiving this inheritance, the father passing down everything in the family to the son. I mean, this was the basis of their culture and their society. And so here is a legitimate complaint from a son saying, hey, my brother, he and I are supposed to divide this in the way that was deemed by our father. Hey, the inheritance isn't going right with my family. This is injustice. Jesus, you need to do something about it. Here's a voice shouting from the crowd. Hey, will you help this get divided the right way? And Jesus, he answers back a little tongue in cheek here in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Well, the truth is the father in heaven will exalt Jesus to the name above all names and make him judge of all. And he said to them, take care. Here's Jesus saying, listen to this. Pay attention. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Stop being greedy for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is a breath and stop thinking that you can add weight to your life with all of your stuff. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Now, here's a guy who's got such a plentiful harvest, such an abundant crop that he can't fit all of his stuff. Anybody else ever had that problem where you can't fit all your stuff? Right. You got to get a bigger garage, got to get more storage, got to get a second storage. Anybody else want to say amen to that? Right. Got so much stuff, he doesn't have a place to put it all. And he said, verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, this is the heart of King Belshazzar right here. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This week I had a moment to do something a little bit old fashioned. Made me feel cool when I did it. I read a newspaper. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember what that was like? Actually turning the pages, right? Reading the articles. I was reading the USA Today on Monday. You can look it up if you want. They surveyed 2,000 adults in America. And 87% of these adults surveyed said that the main source of their confidence and happiness in life came from their finances, from their bank account. 87% of the adults in our nation are finding the value of their life in what they own. Fools, God says. This very night, your soul is required of you. And you've wasted your life, your breath of a life. You've wasted it getting rich here and not investing it towards the kingdom of heaven. How foolish to think you have a lot of time to enjoy your worldly goods. When tomorrow is guaranteed to no one. Here's Jesus telling this story. Driving this point home that, hey, when we die, all of our stuff gets divided. This is one of the things that King Solomon said was vanity. You get all of this stuff, even if you're wise in all of your dealings, you get it all and then maybe a fool inherits it and they squander all of it. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. That's what Solomon said. And here in Orange County, here in America, people are building their whole life off something that is a breath here today. And gone tomorrow. Jesus, he says, hey. Let me tell you what what you need to think about when it comes to dividing stuff. And when I hear this word divided, I can't just think of the stuff left on earth being divided. I think about death and then judgment. And then every soul gets divided into two eternal destinies. Okay, this is not a joke. This is not the caricature that the world has made it. This is serious. This is sobering. This should wake us all up. The Bible says that every one of us here in this room, that every single person on this planet, there are two possible places that we will spend eternity. We will either be in the presence of God, worshiping him in all of his glory in what we refer to as heaven, or we will be apart from God where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth in a place we refer to as hell. You will end up in one of these two places forever. That's what the Bible says. And it says it very clearly. Everyone will be divided into two possible locations. Go back to Luke chapter three. We're in Luke 12. Just turn back to Luke three and hear the words of John the Baptist as he was preparing the way of the Lord. You know, as John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, he talked about not only his first coming when he came to die for us, to give us a new life through his resurrection. But he also talked about his second coming when Jesus came. To not die for the sin of the world, but to judge the sin of the world. And he says this in Luke 3, 16. Listen to the words of John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest man who ever lived. John said, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what does it say there? See, we don't talk about that a lot, do we? He's saying, hey, I'm dunking you in water. This is just a symbol of your repentance. When Jesus comes, you're going to get through Christ. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does, this is now really your salvation. This is when you get a new heart and the Holy Spirit of the living God comes to indwell you. And the Holy Spirit, he places you into Christ. You're no longer yourself. You're a new creation in Jesus. And at the moment of your salvation, when you're born again, you die to who you used to be, to your old life of sin. Just like Jesus died to pay for your sin, you now die to your sins. You don't have to live in it any longer and you rise just as Jesus rose from the dead. You now have a new life, an eternal life, an abundant life in Jesus Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the symbol that we celebrate is when people get dunked in water. That's the cleansing of their old life of sin and the rising up to a new life in Jesus. That's the symbol. But it says there's two baptisms here. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then there's a baptism of fire, it says. So we don't really talk about that one. Because if you don't get cleansed from your sin, you have to get judged for your sin. And then he says this in verse 17. This is a verse I've never seen on Instagram or Pinterest, Luke three seventeen, His winnowing fork, his sickle, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here comes the Lord of the harvest. He's got a big old sickle in his hand. And he's coming now to look at the field and all of those who have been saved, all of those who have been grown up in their new life, all of the wheat, they're going in the barn, but all of the wicked are like chaff. Here today, gone tomorrow, blown away, and all of that chaff will be gathered. And it will be thrown into the fire, not just any fire, an unquenchable fire. So the Bible has a lot of ways that it describes heaven and it describes hell. Heaven is a place of of just glorious light. Where the day never ends. Hell is a place of complete and outer darkness where you can't see anything even in front of your face. I mean, there are we got pearly gates, we got streets of gold, and we've got a place where the fire never stops, the burning never ends. We're talking about eternal conscious torment. We're talking about a miserable. Existence. Jesus warns about hell many times, saying it is a real place and people are really going to go there after we, our days are numbered and we are weighed in judgment. Our souls will be divided for all of eternity. And what horror must have come into the mind of King Belshazzar when he heard all of this? What fear when he realized that he had wasted his life and now it was too late. The good news is we're talking about it here this morning is it's not too late for us as we sit here together today. It's not too late. There's a fourth word that we can add here today. Let's go back to the book of Romans and let's see how do you not face this judgment? How do you not get divided to a place of condemnation? Well, it gives the answer after it tells us clearly that none of us are going to measure up. We're all going to be weighed in the balances and found wanting. Then it says this here in Romans three. Pick it up where we left off in verse twenty three. Here's some good news for everybody who's going to die. Here's some good news of life. In Romans 3.23, it says that, yes, all of us have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. Here's verse 24 and are justified. We are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There is something that has satisfied the wrath of a holy God. There is something that you can put on the scales and it has weight to it. There is something that measures up to God's standard. It is the perfectly righteous blood of Jesus Christ. It measures up to the standard of a holy God. And that blood was shed for you. Now, we just want to make this very clear. There is nothing that you will ever do in this life that will get you into heaven. Somebody asks you the question, how do you get into heaven? And you start with I anything. It's the wrong answer. There is only one thing that gets any of us past the pearly gates onto the streets of gold, worshiping with the angels, and it is the precious, spotless, pure blood of the lamb. That is the only thing is Jesus dying for you on that cross. It's why every single voice in all the different languages and times that they represent and people groups that they represent, they will all cry out in one voice. Worthy is the lamb. Because his blood is the only reason anybody gets there. And notice what it says. Look back at verse 24. The reason we are made righteous, the reason we are justified is by his grace. It's totally out of the goodness and love of God. It has to do with him, not with us. And it is a gift can you earn a gift can your works merit a gift no works merit wages the wages of your sin what you have earned for yourself is death but the free gift of God is righteousness and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord the Father in heaven will weigh your life with the blood of Jesus on your account that's what it says about Father Abraham. See, it talks about the father of the Jews, Abraham, in Romans 4. And it gives us this idea. Verse 3, Romans 4, verse 3. Look at this. It says, for what does the scripture say? Here's the template of salvation. Here's how it works. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It When Abraham had faith. When he believed the promises of God, when he took God at his word and he really trusted his soul into God's hands, then he received righteousness as a gift or the key word here. It was counted as righteousness. Now, this wasn't just for Abraham. Go to Romans 4, 22. Go down to verse 22 there. And it's reviewing. That is why his faith, this is, what we, this is how we receive the free gift of God. It's a gift of grace, and it's received by faith. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. So what it's saying here is in Genesis 15, it talks about Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, that wasn't written so that Abraham would read it and be encouraged that he was righteous. Moses wrote this much later. Abraham never read Genesis. Okay, he lived it. He never read it. All right. So why is Moses writing it like that? It's not there for Abraham. It's there for you. That God would show you, this is how it works. And he did it all the way back from the beginning. This is how it works. I'm going to tell you how life works. You're going to believe me. You're going to trust me. You're going to transfer your trust from yourself and anything you can do to me. And when you trust in me, then you will be counted. Then you will be counted as one of my righteous one. So let's write that down as a fourth word, right above point number one, write down counted. This is the thing that is the most important thing that could happen to you in your life, that God would count to you as righteous. That he would give you the gift of the righteousness of the pure blood of Jesus. And the only way that you can receive that gift is you have to stop believing that you can do anything to save yourself. And you have to transfer the trust of your soul into the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you believe that Jesus saves you. That's the right answer. How do you get into heaven? His name is Jesus. And once you believe in Jesus, you are counted as one of the righteous ones. And even though your life was but a breath, and even though you were weighed in the balances and found wanting, and even though your stuff is being divided here on earth, you will stand in the presence of a holy God as righteous because the blood of Jesus will cover all of your sin. And you will be counted as righteous in the presence of God. That's what we need. We have to transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus Christ. Christ and I'm not saying do you know this I'm not I don't care if you know what I'm saying knowledge does not get you anywhere go back to Daniel 5 and let's just make it very clear it doesn't matter if you know the gospel that's not the point okay that's not the point what I want you to see here is the horrible realization that happened in the mind of King Belshazzar when Daniel was pronouncing his judgment upon him. And look at how Daniel, after he gives his history lesson, he says this in verse 22. And here's Daniel now really bringing it to this king. And look what he says. He says in verse 22, Daniel 5:22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Here's the line you might want to underline. You might want to write down, though you knew all this. Point number one, let's get it down like this. Point number one, knowing the truth is not enough. Just because you know that Jesus died and rose again and he's the only way to heaven does not mean you're going to heaven. The demons know that Jesus died and rose again and they tremble at the thought of it. We're not going to see them in heaven. Jesus made it very clear that on that day, The day when the number comes up and everything is weighed and divided on that day, many, there will be many people who will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, they'll know who Jesus is. They'll maybe have taken his name a lot of times while they were down here on earth. They'll maybe have been to a few Christmases and a few Easter services and a few mornings at church like this one that they'll be wishing desperately at that moment they had paid a lot more attention to and responded to when they had a chance. The guy knew enough about the God of Israel to take the articles from the temple and use them to get drunk, but he didn't really know anything about the God of Israel until it was too late. And how many people? When that moment of death happens so suddenly to them. And they're standing there being weighed in the presence of God. How many people will have known the truth the whole time and never have done anything about it? Can you feel the horror of what people are going to be thinking on judgment day? Can you feel the horror of they're going to be thinking about that crazy guy at that bus stop said something to me and I never listened to him and he was right the whole time? See, it doesn't matter if you know who Jesus is. It says that on that day, Jesus is going to say to many people, many who grew up going to church, who heard messages like this one, many of them are going to hear Jesus say, depart from me. I never what? doesn't matter if you know who Jesus is. It matters if you've been counted as one of his people. It matters if he knows you. He says, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness, you practicer of Of sin. See, today in America, if you tell me that you believe the Bible and that you know the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ who died on the cross, shedding his righteous blood to pay the penalty of your sin, and then he rose again to offer you eternal life, a relationship with the Father. Today in America, if you say, I know that, I believe it's true, America will say you're a Christian. This book doesn't say you're a Christian. This book says you're a Christian when you really transfer your trust to Jesus. When you begin a relationship with Jesus. When you give him your entire life. We're trying to make it very clear here this morning that you are saved by faith alone. It is only by trusting in Christ that you can be saved. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? But here's the thing. The faith that saves you is never alone. There is no possible way that you could believe in Jesus without experiencing the power of his transformation in your life. Everyone who really has faith in Jesus, if they get to keep living after that moment, if their days are a few more than that, you will see the works, the good work of Jesus will bear fruit in their life. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. It's foreign to the pages of Scripture. Somebody tells you they believe in Jesus, but they're still living the same old way in their sin. That's not what it means. No, it doesn't matter if you know the truth. You've got to know where you are going by knowing Jesus. Let's get that down for point number two. Know where you are going by knowing Jesus. You have to have a real relationship with Christ. You've entrusted your soul to him. You're living him. You'll follow him even to the point of death because you know he has saved your life. You're not trying to mass up a life for yourself here on earth. You're ready to lose your life that you would find it in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian person. That's what it means to be a person of faith. Everything in your life is now defined by Christ. And you live now for him and it transforms everything about you. And you know him and you walk with him. And if you do stumble into sin, you confess that sin and you find that he's faithful and just to forgive you and he renews you and he strengthens you. And you really walk with Jesus day by day. It's not enough to know the truth. To know what happens when we die. No, you have to know Jesus to go to heaven. You have to know Jesus for your soul to be saved. Romans 1.21 says, although they knew God, they denied God. Everybody knows there is a God on some level. Everybody can see the world, this beautiful world, this universe that we live in. It has a maker. It has a creator. And he is a wonderful designer of life. And he gives life and he gives breath and he gives all things. And what is the reason that people don't believe in God? What is the reason they don't worship him? It's not because it's not evident there is a creator. It's because they want to sin. That's why. And as they deny God and choose other things to worship, but besides him, God gives them over to their sin. And to a debased mind and they can't see life clearly and they start to think I've got plenty of time and I can do what I want and I'm in control of my own life. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin says you could know the truth. You could know the whole story. You could hear a sermon like this one. You could know the whole good news of Jesus Christ, how he humbled himself and was born at Christmas, how he lived the perfect life of righteousness, how he died on the cross for your sin on Good Friday and he rose from the dead on Easter. You could know the whole story. But if you go home and keep on sinning. Then you're not saved. That's what Hebrews 10, 26 is saying. You can't know the truth and then keep on sinning. You know what happens to people who know the truth and they keep on sinning? So those sinners fall into the hands of the living God. And our God is a consuming fire. That's what he goes on to say. You've got to really know Jesus. He's got to really have changed your life. And I want you to know it right now today. I want you to know in your soul. And I want to ask you the question. And hopefully we've talked long enough that now you'll really hear me when I say this to you. If you die today, what will happen to your soul? Will you go to heaven? Or will you go to hell? This is a question that you need to know the answer. And you need to know Jesus Christ. I encourage you to address your own soul. And don't say to your soul, soul, I've got plenty of time. Let's live it up in the here and now. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. I would encourage you to say to your soul, are you ready to meet your maker? Have you made things right between you and God? If you stood in his presence right now, what would you be ashamed of? I would encourage you while we sing this next song to address the issues of your soul before God because there will come a day when your number comes up and you will meet him. And I hope you stand there counted as righteous in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I hope you hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. Let me pray. Father in heaven, God, we are so deceived by life, by what we can see. God, we don't see life as a breath. We think we're in control of how many days we're going to live here on this earth. God, please use the harsh reality of death to wake us up to life in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I just confess the pride that so many of us have, the pride of life, the pride of possessions. We think of ourselves as healthy and fit and ready to live for a long time. God, I just pray that you will humble us through this horrible story of King Belshazzar. We thought he was high and mighty, Sitting on a throne in an impenetrable city with all of his friends, doing whatever he wanted, even making a mockery out of you, the God of Israel, when really he should have been humble before you, confessing his sins, turning to you, seeking the righteousness that only you can give. Got to pray that we'll learn this lesson. Before it happens to us, before it happens to people we love, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for those of us who have transferred our trust to Jesus, for those of us who have been declared righteous in heaven and we've been counted as one of your own. God, we want to praise you right now for our salvation. We want to thank you for the gift of grace that you have given us. And we want to say here today that we believe in Jesus. We know him as our Lord and Savior. And Jesus has given us confidence that we have blessed assurance that if we were to be absent from the body, we would be present with our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would put on our hearts how many souls do we know right now where their days are numbered, and they will be weighed and they will be divided and they're not ready to die. God, why aren't we bringing it up with them? Why don't we open our mouths and ask them life's most important question? Why do we have the secret to the keys of the kingdom of heaven and keep it to ourselves? Father, put on us a great heart of love for those who are lost. Let us tell them the truth that is in Jesus Christ so that they might know him before it's too late. That they might receive by faith that free gift and be counted as righteous in your presence. And God, I just pray if there's somebody here right now and they're feeling convicted about their sin and they know they're not right with you, God, that they would cry out to you and confess their sin. God, that they would transfer their trust from them being a good person or earning their way to heaven and they would believe that it's only the righteous blood of Jesus that can purchase their salvation. It's only the resurrection of Jesus that can give them life. That today, Father, would be the day of salvation. That you would save souls here among us. So God, let us be ready to meet you. Let us have clean hands, pure hearts. Let us not worship anyone else, but you, our Savior, our Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.